We're going under the hood with Dr. Sunshine, where we explore topics that are relevant to STEM professionals with intersecting identities. Thank you for listening. Welcome back everyone to episode 10 of Under the Hood. Once again, Under the Hood is a space for aspiring current or retired STEM students and professionals. And it's also a space for friends and family of STEM people where you can hear firsthand accounts of the behind the scenes um, experiences of those that you care about um, or those who have dedicated their working lives to STEM and careers in STEM. So today we are focused on the friends and family of STEM people. <laughs> I think this is gonna be a very interesting conversation. And with me is a very special guest, Ms. Deadira Arellano. So welcome Dee. So Dee is uh, a community building consultant with the People's Collective for Environmental Justice. And PSEDGE is a grassroots organization in the Inland Empire of California that supports local organizing and regional and national coalitions. She is an experienced organizer with over 10 years of service and experience, and her work supports both urban and rural communities. Her work as a community organizer also includes work at the intersection of issues such as environmental justice, immigration, public education, labor, and gender justice. So these Mexico and Texas roots help her to bridge Gulf Coast and West Coast communities through collective decision-making and other advocacy efforts. With that, thank you, Dee, for joining Under the Hood. Hey, Dr. Ivy, how are y'all doing? Thanks for, thanks for having me here today. Excellent, wonderful. We're so happy to have you, Dee. Um, and I, just for the listeners, I met Dee through PeaceEdge, um, actually online during the deepest part of quarantine. And since then, we've interacted over the past two years. And most recently, we converged in Bloomington, California, um, for a congressional public hearing for the Environmental Justice for All Act. And it was there I became re-inspired by Dee's passion. And we started talking about um, her uh, organizing and also her role as a supporter of someone who's going through um, the PhD program as a first generation student. So let's get started. Um, we'll start by learning more about Dee and her organizing journey. So the first question I wanna ask is, so Dee, you currently work and thrive in the Inland Empire of California. So that's Inland Southern California. Why did you decide to choose a career in community organizing? Hey, um, so it's funny just like hearing you do the rundown of how we met and all that because um, I know that we recently were, we were like talking over dinner and I was mentioning to you about um, how I, you know, this, 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 this lifestyle, right? Just this uh, academic lifestyle, um, living on campus with my partner and with family. And, um, and you're like, oh, would you like to be on the show? And I'm like, what am I going to say? I'm not the one doing this and uh, like doing the PhD. And you're like, yeah, but this is important. And let me tell you about the podcast. So just really happy to be here and be able to support, um, like, our, our just folks that are going through the same situations that we are. Um, because I know that there, there is a big need out there um, to address situations like this. So um, you asked uh, about my career work or how did I get into this. Um, actually... Oh, I'm trying to think back to, to when I grew up. So I guess growing up, um, I was always like an active kid. Um, and always just bored over the summer and asked uh, my my mom, actually, uh, if there was like anything I can do. And we couldn't really afford like summer camp or things like that. And then YMCA 
you know, got to a point where that was not sustainable or sustaining for us. So then I started, you know, figuring out other ways to get involved in the community. Uh, we looked at um, uh, what was then considered the boys club. And um, now it's boys and girls club. Um, and so my mom was like, no, I'm not going to send you to the boys club. Um, it's only for boys. And then in addition to that, just, you know, general um, anxieties that parents go through. Um, then we, we found out about like candy scraping and hospitals. And so I did that for like maybe one summer. Um, and then is in high school, I learned about AmeriCorps. And that was through just a very loving and caring um, counselor. Um, and so I did AmeriCorps two years after I graduated. And then AmeriCorps was sort of like my gateway into uh, not, nonprofit work. And then from there on out, it has been um, just nonprofit work in off and on. Um, and until more recently, like in my more adult life, um, thinking about different ways in which we work around, uh, either with or around um, nonprofits and, you know, starting collectives and mutual aid groups and just, you know, really people oriented. So I guess always, always towards the service uh, model and uh, people oriented type of uh, work. Oh, okay. So you were immersed in uh, community organizing as a youth, right? Well, I, um, I, I didn't know it as community organizing back then. I, I just knew it as volunteerism, just volunteering. Okay. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, awesome. So uh, thank you for telling us about that. And um, so you had that experience, you became immersed in your service, and now you are a full-fledged community organizer in the IE. And can you talk to us about um, which issues you're currently working on um, and why you are working on them? Yeah, so... Um, I guess for Peace Edge, uh, a lot of the work is um, around environmental justice. Um, that's not to say that uh, there, there aren't social um, issues that intersect with that. Um, and, you know, just, it just really depends on uh, the communities that we're working with, the groups that we're working with, and, you know, what, what they're working on or what their priorities are. So um, uh, it's... I guess an example would be um, the community, the community members at, in Bloomington that we're accompanying in their um, just in in their efforts to preserve their agricultural and equestrian lifestyles um, because they do have like these warehouses that are coming in, and so very much working alongside them and you know trying to um, create that. Uh, just collective decision making and you know what does that look like and uh where do they want to what do they want to prioritize at the moment because there's just so many things that um that are happening all at once and so uh it is very much about what makes sense to them and you know what does capacity look like and how how to take on that work um so that's one thing um of course he says is also involved in other communities so each one um, is always going to be different. You know, they, uh, Bloomington at this time might be uh, concerned about one specific um, development project. Of course, there are others. Um, and then you have like San Bernardino City who might be working on something else, um, like possibly railroad expansion. Um, you might have like a different uh, a different effort happening in Colton uh, for a warehouse moratorium. So each, each, each community is going to take on their own priorities and um and basically decision making um so that's on the that's on the environmental justice side um we also have folks um or i also work with folks back home in texas with uh texas environmental justice advocacy services and so that's on an affinated basis depending on you know again what issues they're working on um i also uh, work with um the ethnic studies network of texas and so we are currently gearing up for our um, August uh, convergence. So every year we do like this online convergence where we work with um, graduate students, academics, professors, um, community members, parents, students. Um, and we do like this online um, get together where, you know, folks present on 
whatever it is that they think is going to be able to uh, bring together the, the four fields within ethnic studies. So either it, it can be how to implement Mexican-American studies in your school or, you know, um, history within their local community that can be used in the classroom. Um, take, for instance, um, take, for instance, like local histories that have happened in, in Texas that we don't hear enough about. Um, and so that's what's happening on that end. And then I also look at a different group um, called uh, Community Voices for Public Education. And that's uh, centered on educational needs or education justice um, in Texas. And so in different ways, um, they are different. But I also see similarities in, in the way that, um, let's take, for instance, uh, how Texas science standards were among the worst in the nation in 2020, and they're still trailing behind. Um, and then you have big companies like Shell Oil weighing in on how climate change is taught in the classroom, which, you know, for some some folks might say, oh, well, you know, those are just Texas standards. How does that affect me? Um, but when you see these, like, big, get big companies like Shell dictating how climate change is taught, that is going to affect us. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, there, there, there are... For me, there are ways that uh, this works into, uh, I guess, overlap. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that and sharing that anecdote about how big oil is influencing uh, curriculum. That's pretty concerning. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I like um, how you brought in the work that you're doing both in Texas and California. And so that brings me to my next question, um, which is how unique or how different are Inland Empire and Texas issues compared to the challenges that are faced at the national scale. So can you weigh in on whether or not what we're seeing in local microcosms is actually a symptom of a wider spread problem across the nation? Well, I, I could say this. Um, they're different for sure in the way that each community is made up of like unique, um, and unique and the people, like just the uniqueness of each community and the people who live in them and how different they are from one another. So for instance, you have, um, like urban settings, um, and you also have semi-rural settings in, in Texas or around Houston, um, because I, I was working alongside communities in both in Manchester and Baytown, and Baytown was home to one of the largest uh, petrochemical companies, Exxon, right? Um, and they were considered semi-rural. Um, and at the same time, um, you have <laughs> instances where um, community colleges were not um, actually addressing environmental justice in a, in a, in a more direct way than you would think, right? Or a more advocacy than you would think. Um, so it was, it was really like, um, you had counselors that were working with, um, I guess, <laughs> I guess in one way, the industry and like, um, creating these STEM pathways. Um, and it's like, wow. <laughs> So it's like, wow, so where, how do we, how do we partner with institutions when these relationships with industry is, are so strong? Um, and so you have that, uh, but at the same time, you have other ways in which we're able to partner with uh, professors or, you know, even other counselors who are like, yeah, you know what, we do want to create um, alternatives to the, these industry career pathways. And so, you know, how do we, um, how, how can we get you to come in to uh, be a guest speaker or work with a club, a student club, or, you know, just something like that. So always trying to find a way, uh, a way in. Um, and then what was the other one? Um, well, okay. And then in some communities you have, um, so for instance, here, um, in Riverside and San Bernardino counties, what we have are, um, 13 tribes, uh, within those, within those counties that are recognized by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, and you also have, so you have like the federally recognized, uh, native groups and you have unfederally recognized, um, groups. And so the, the communities, I guess it's, it's very much a, a priority for what it is that they're working on. And I, and I will say that, um, not all, not all of your communities that you're working with are going to agree. Um, we, I was in a Bloomington, 
I was at a MAC meeting, uh, which stands for Municipal Advisory Council for uh, for Bloomington in the San Bernardino County area. And we had someone show up at a MAC meeting who was advocating for the warehouse, for this uh, uh, Bloomington Business Park Project warehouse. And we were like, wow. And they identified as being a member of one of, one of these um, tribes. And we were just like, wow. Um, okay. So then what do you do in that situation, right? Because um, just because one, one member of that tribe felt this way, it isn't an automatic endorsement of the whole tribe. Um, and it's not an automatic endorsement of all tribes either. And so then you start to, you know, uh, start understanding like what are, what are these different dynamics and, you know, who can we ally with and, and who will talk to us? You know, so, um, so I guess, um, it, it's, it's complicated in the way that you have folks, different folks, all fighting for environmental protections to preserve their communities, to their lifestyles for, and, and that's not to say that this is individualistic. It's very much like a collective work. But the way in which people fight back or the way in which communities fight back and, and how, and, and how, um, how that, how that affects each other's relationships. Um, there are agreements in certain situations where you have like environmental justice, uh, communities signing on to, um, signing on to a petition or something that, um, one community is working with. But that's not to say that everybody is on board because you, it, it just really depends on, you know, where the agreements lie with one another, what, what does solidarity look and feel like with one another. So I would say um, they're the same in the way that they're fighting for, the, for these protections. They're fighting for their human rights. Uh, they're fighting for clean air, uh, clean, clean access to water. Um, but the, but they, the strategies, the tactics, um, Sometimes even the agreements are going to be different. Wow, yeah, that that was pretty profound. I would I, I I find. Thank you for bringing it to the forefront that even like in a smaller region, you're going to have many different thoughts and and ethos about what's the right way to address environmental injustices, and that we actually have to in, engage in conversations that allow all of those perspectives to come to the table. And it's not always one size fits all. That's, um, that's something that us STEM people that are on the research side have to keep in mind because we like to uh, come up with blanket solutions to things. And as we are learning from deep, we can't do that. We actually have to talk to all representatives of um, groups that are being impacted by whatever issue that we're trying to quote unquote help. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, no problem. Yeah. And so I kind of want to. I don't yeah. have one solution. Sorry. I, I, I don't have one solution for, for you at all. Um, it's, this is all a work in progress. Um, there are many ways to fail, uh, but there are also many ways to learn together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Learning together. Um, and we'll talk about those strategies in just a second. But I want to round out this discussion about your uh, experience and your work to this, to the, to today uh, by asking if there's any uh, memory that you can remember from your childhood or maybe your early adulthood that is consistently motivating your organizing journey to this day? Yeah, um, so many examples. Um, and I think, I think for us, it's, uh, for myself, it is um, just like the way in which our community uh, back home. Uh, so I, I'm originally from Houston, Texas. And so we are no stranger to hurricanes and no stranger to floods. Um, so when, so when, when hurricanes came, uh, when the floods came, like we, that, that's when you actually, you really saw our neighborhood, you know, just like, Hey neighbor, you need some electricity. Can I run a line? 
Uh, we got all this food in the fridge. Let's do a cookout. You know, just like a good old-fashioned coming together. What do you need? What else? This is what I got. Um, sharing, uh, I guess, in its most, at its most basic form, is mutual aid. Um, and, and then just neighborly love. Uh, something that, uh, like even now living on campus, I didn't see very much of, uh, like, especially during the pandemic, it was like everybody's, you know, doing their own thing. They're staying indoors. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it, 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 it's just really different or maybe it could be my own bias that, you know, this is my hometown and I just was much more comfortable because I knew my neighbors. I had known them for so long. Right. Um, and then also growing up the way that I, I was brought up by my, uh, by my grandma and grandpa and because my mom was always, always had to work and so did my dad. Um, and he, he my dad had two jobs. So what I saw, I grew, I grew up with, um, I grew up with my elders. So I grew up with my grandma and grandpa and seeing them interact with other elders. And it was like, Hey, Hey, Miss Wanda, how you doing? You know, just people coming around, sharing food. Um, sharing good talks, talks out on the front porch. So that was the type of, that was the type of community that I grew up in. It was where people knew each other and people knew that if you have a little bit something extra, you, you, you know, you can share that. And, um, and you don't have to worry about whether or not you're going to be uh, short on something because somebody's always going to come through for you. So that, that's what inspired me to, you know, as a kid, like I'm bored. Um, let me try to figure out how how I can go and do something at the park or at the community center. Just somewhere, somewhere where I can fit in and I can meet other people. Um, that was just just something that was in me from from the very beginning, and I think it was my grandmother. Oh, Dee, thank you. That's beautiful. Um, I really love how you talk about the mutual aid and how friendly your community was growing up. And yeah, that is, that's missing from a lot of our lives uh, today. Um, that communal living and the mutual aid um, is, it's disappearing um, because partially because we all have to move for jobs. You know, we, we, we're in a global economy. And so you end up relocating somewhere where you don't know anybody. But um, thank you for sharing your journey. Yeah, yeah go ahead. It, it, it. Sorry, if I could add something. Well, you see it disappearing and then you don't. Because like in Bloomington, when I when I met the folks out there with concerned neighbors of Bloomington, I, that's what I see there. I see neighborly love. I see people looking out for one another. I see, you know, um, someone that I'm working with closely right now, and she, uh, they have apples and lemons and, you know, they make soap from goat's milk. And, and she's, she's, she's giving it to her neighbors. You know, you don't see none of this like, Oh, how much can you give me for that? You know what I mean? It's like neighbors out there helping each other. And, and I'm like, that's what it, that is what it's about. And that's what I love. I, I truly love that community because of, because it connects with me in the ways that I knew growing up. Oh, uh, that's beautiful. Absolutely. And I know who you're talking about. She is, she is a special lady and I see her light and you're right. It is that community that really draws you in. And when I was back in Bloomington, I felt that. And I, it was like the ha one of the, it was a pretty emotional moment, but it was one of the happiest times that I've experienced in a long time. So yeah, you, there's something special in the IE and there is something special in community. Thank you for bringing that up. So um, I really enjoy hearing about your background and some of the work that you're doing. Um, and so we'll we'll now talk about um, we'll try to learn from you um, as part of like the STEM professional community about how we can show up better to support folks like you and your efforts. So my first question is: Is it important for STEM researchers and professionals to support? local advocacy efforts and stand in solidarity with organizers i would say like yesterday yes like yesterday <laughs> because um so take for instance that example right with a with the oil watering down climate change or how climate change is taught in the classroom 
um, you have another example here in California with Amazon being more than willing to create career pathways. Not just in California, though. They're doing it in Texas, too. Um, then you have, um, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you one more example with my son. Uh, my son, um, he was a STEM student in, in Texas. He took all these engineering classes. You know, he was looking forward to coming out here to California and then um, going into a STEM career. Um, that all changed when um, that all changed when we moved to California because they didn't count his STEM credits from Texas. I don't know why there was something something for some reason they didn't count it because it had to do with whatever math equivalency courses and it transfer over. Uh, but that's a whole other story. Um, what I wanted to tell you about my son was that he. Um, so he was in a STEM program back in Texas. Um, it's actually in Fort Worth. And um, and this STEM teacher was like, you know, uh, the students have to take, uh, have to go to this career. It was some kind of a career event or career night and a library. And they had special guests coming from Lockheed Martin. And I was like, no, absolutely not. I do not want my son attending. Um, and But it was part of the grade or somehow it was part of the grade. And I was just like, I, and then, and then you have my son that's like, mom, don't make a big deal. You know, it's fine. And I'm like, all right, if you're going to go, that means I'm going to go. And if I'm going to go, you're not going to be in any photo op. I'm not going to be in any photo op. Um, we're going to sit at the back and we're going to, we're going to listen. Right. So we're at this event and, um, and I see parents there too. And the parents are very proud. Um, and I, I you know, uh, they told us, they told me little to nothing about this event. Um, when I get there, I see uh, one representative and I see like the main speaker and then like his two assistants. And the two assistants look like us, look like, look Hispanic and speak Spanish and whatnot. But the main speaker does not. The main speaker only speaks English. And, um, and he was the engineer or whatever. And I guess the other two were assistants or something. Um, and they had this presentation. And they're hyping the kids up about lasers on airplanes and whatnot. And I'm, I'm talking to my son the whole time and just like debunking everything. Just like, well, what is this for? And what do they use that for? And what do you think those lasers are for? And he, and he was like, you're right. And so he's like seeing this and he's like, true. And so they're showing them images of airplanes with lasers or jets with lasers. And, uh, and then the guy says something like, and oh, these lasers have, um, what did he say? He said they they have something something precision, and I'm like something like they have precision for what? What are they going to be doing? What are they going to be dropping? Who are they going to be affecting? Just so many other human rights related questions that were not even addressed. It was just like all about the technology, but not what is the technology being used for? And so that was you know, just my biggest concern uh, with how this information was being presented to STEM students. And we're talking, we're talking 11th grade. Um, and so these relationships that I saw with uh, these, these corporations um, and how they're entrenched in our education system, to me, is just very unbalanced. It's like, okay, you know, if we can't get them out, then what can we get in? And we're seeing now... Um, when you ask, you know, what can they do? Then my, I guess my question is, how can we build some relationships with social justice in K through 12? Um, because it, it really starts early on. They're already starting at a kindergarten level, you know, bringing in tanks and, and airplanes and, you know, all of these other machinery and military presence in our schools. But where is the social justice inside of our schools? Um, and what we see are uh, just different ways in which uh, social justice gets villainized, such as the way in which, you know, CRT was all thrown around. And, and really, we're not even talking about CRT. We're just talking about how to be more neighborly, how to look out for our friends, how to ask um, questions, you know, what, how does this impact um, animal life, human beings, our four-legged, two-legged friends? You know, so these, these are all the questions that, um, that come up for me on um, why, is, why is this important? Wow. Uh, yeah, that's uh, interesting. Um, and I was today years old when 
I started thinking about how we're indoctrinated to use STEM and STEM education to support some maybe not so nice uh, efforts, um, namely like war efforts. Um, that that's that's concerning, and I do agree that you know we can balance that out by bringing in social justice themes uh, right alongside the the traditional indoctrination. Wow, and good for you for standing up and and joining that Lockheed Martin meeting. And so, with with that being said, um, based on your experiences like you, what you just said, based on what you've seen in the organizing space. Can you give us about three top three pieces of advice for STEM researchers like myself who are looking to get involved and start uh, counteracting these kind of harmful practices uh, with local organizers? So your top three pieces of advice. I would say you're already involved, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Um, I, definitely, like non-organizations work the same. Uh, not all nonprofits work the same. Not all groups work the same. Um, understanding, you know, what the relationship is with communities. Um, what is uh, what what is that access to decision making that community members have within the organization? Uh, that's that's very important. Um, but um, just understanding that uh, organizers are separate, and I, I would say are separate from community, the communities that they're working with, simply because of access or decision making. Because if I'm an organizer and I have access to DC, does that really mean that I hold the same power as a community member that, that does not have that access without me? Do you know what I mean? So, um, so, so what is, how, how, is, how is this relationship going to work? Um, and are community members able to speak for themselves, which is the most important thing. Um, because with, with the work that I've done, uh, now with Pisage and also with Tejas, uh, we definitely do abide by values. We just definitely do have principles and values that align with MS, that align with, um, uh, organizing principles, uh, for, for environmental justice. Um, it is very much about community members being able to speak for themselves. Um, and, uh, and, respecting autonomy of the people that live there uh, because there is very much an insider-outsider perspective. Um, listening to what uh, community members need um, and not not just parachuting in and not, you know, not being a, a, a transparency disclosure on, you know, project statements, um, understanding timelines, data sovereignty, co-authorship, um, if that's something that community folks are um, interested in. Um, and then them having control over their own data and how it's stored, uh, whether or not these are going to be accessible through public archives. Um, a lot of a lot of that is, you know, what we really do strive for. And it's and and I'm and that's not to say um, that's all we strive for. There's it, it's a it's a continuous conversation. Um, so, um, I guess the best is, uh, the, the the best thing I could say is um, it is a work in progress, and if if you think this is, don't say stagnant on, okay, we did a good job with this one project and let's try that same approach and that same method with the next community. It's not going to work that way. Like each community is going to be on an individual basis. Yeah, thank you, Dee. Um, so you brought up some great points. Uh, listening, letting the community speak for themselves, working with and alongside the organizers who may or may not be insiders or outsiders and data sovereignty, co-production, and co-authorship. Okay, those are those are good pieces of advice. Um, thank you so much. And so I'd like to also ask if anybody listening wants to support Peace Edge, your organization, or get involved with uh, advocacy efforts, can you tell us the best way to do that? Yep, they can come help. They can come help us peel some onions. <laughs> we got plenty of onions to peel. So yeah, I mean, uh, we're on all the social media accounts. Uh, uh, People's Collective for Environmental Justice. Uh, we're always looking into these these big problems. 
um, always looking into, you know, how is it affecting uh, different communities. Uh, help us peel back these layers because it is a lot of work and we do need allies and we do need people that are willing to, uh, we, we need co-journers. So, you know, if you're willing to be a co-journer and create a learning space with us, um, we, we definitely will welcome you. Uh, but again, um, it, it's a, we're very much interested in uh, working alongside communities and working alongside um, researchers uh, because it, it, re- research has done so much harm to frontline communities, to indigenous communities that, you know, we're out here trying to repair these harms and figure out how do we work together. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Um, like Dee just said, follow uh, Peace Edge on all their socials. I will link those in the description box. Um, it's really important for us to listen to community um, because like Dee just said, our research can cause harm if we're not careful and intentional. Thank you for your candid advice. So in this next part of our conversation, um, it, I want to go under the hood, so kind of the, talk about the behind the scenes of what it's like to live in your shoes, Dee, because as I just learned, your husband is working on a PhD in anthropology, and so while um, this may not be considered a STEM discipline, I think his experience as a first-generation doctoral student um, is in parallel to what his STEM counterparts may be going through. And I found some of your uh, testimony to be really interesting. So um, can you just take some time to share with us from your perspective um, as a person who supports uh, and a first generation academic, um, how has being first generation impacted him as a researcher? Yeah. well, I think I think first of all, it's funny how like first generation is used in the U.S. because um, degrees. It's it, 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 to me, it's funny because like degrees from home countries are not counted. Um, so we have like there are families that have uh, family members in their community are in their families who have who have degrees from their home countries, but we never we never include those, right? Um, so it's um, that's just interesting in and of itself. Because when I was talking to him. Um, this has come up before and he's like, well, you know, my uncle and, or my aunt, you know, and I'm just like, Oh, I had no idea. You know? So in, in his family, it's, uh, it's him and a cousin, uh, who are both pursuing, um, their, their PhDs. And so also both also use these systems. And, um, and so they're both kind of like, Oh, when are you going to finish? And, you know, just sharing advice with each other. But, you know, there are uncles and other distant relatives who had maybe not a PhD, but, you know, a master's degree or something uh, similar in, back home. Um, but for us, it's, it's, it's really been, you know, having a supportive family or a, a friend circle uh, because we have been away from home for so long. So just wherever we go, it's, it's finding, finding those allies both inside the institution and out in the in the, the communities that we're a part of, um, that can that can help us um, just navigate, uh, especially during <laughs> this pandemic living. Because this pandemic living has not been easy, um, and especially with kids in tow, that's just a whole other dynamic. Um, I um, I know he didn't go into research straight away. He he took some time from academia and returned when uh, the time was right for all of us. Uh, because um, we had a lot of uh, things to consider. We were, I, at the time, I had um, I had an older son who was going through high school, and we were trying to figure out how's that going to affect him. Uh, we had a, a, a younger, we had a younger daughter that was going through. Um, she would she would have been entering school uh, when we got here, so you know we were navigating that. Um, and it, so it's definitely more than one conversation between us over over time um, to figure out the process and and what it would mean for him and also what it would mean for myself, what it would mean for each one of our children, um, and then taking that into consideration. Uh, but the first year was tough. The first year, I think, more so because 
because of the move and being away from home um, or what we considered home, right? Um, and, and what was familiar. Um, but yeah, I think um, I, I can't stress enough um, how much talk therapy helped manage um, these new lifestyles because it, it definitely was a new lifestyle just being in a different setting and um, campus living and just all of the uh, the, the familiarity um, is what was missing for me and um, and that support system. Um, the support system I had I had back home uh, was different from the support system that I had here. Wow, thank you. Uh, so thank you for talking about the degrees of distant relatives in different countries, that's critical. So that matters having um, people in your family with um, bachelor's or post-grad or post-bachelor's degrees. Um, thank you so much for uh, acknowledging that. And you also talked about um, how the community support that shifts when you move away for your doctoral studies uh, can really be jarring, um, but uh, I'm glad that you all have found that balance. And with that said, I wanna ask about how you have personally been impacted as someone who is the family member of someone that is going through um, a PhD. So how does this impact you? Uh, I think for uh, for me, um, it's it's been a negotiation <laughs> for sure. Uh, just a negotiation and managing our household. Um, when to call on support was a big one for me because I uh, was always the type to be like, no, 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 I got this. No, 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 I got this. You know, and so letting go of some of that and and being like, okay, um, I know you gotta work on this project. Um, but what can you do? You know, because I, I, I was, I very much just took it all on. Uh, and it was pandemic living that made me like step back and say, you know what? Um, you need, uh, you, you, you need some help. Just me telling myself, you need some help. It's okay to ask for help. Um, and then, uh, also meeting other parents that are going, uh, through this journey. Um, uh, through the through pandemic living, we were trying to figure out okay school for our little one um, because uh, because of everything had shut down, and so uh, we were in touch with a really awesome group of homeschoolers um, that and some of them were going through this journey, and so just talking with them and them just being so loving and so gentle with each other and themselves uh, with themselves I cannot stress enough. <laughs> I was like, how, do, how how can I be gentle with myself? Like me understanding that and uh, me hearing from other uh, people that I admired in this group who said, you know what? Sometimes that sink is just going to have some dishes in it and that's just, gonna, that's just where it's going to be. And sometimes your house is going to be clean and sometimes it's not going to be clean and that's just how it's going to be. And, and I was just like, thank you. <laughs> I had these really high expectations of, you know, the house is going to be clean. I'm going to have three meals a day. I'm going to, I'm going to work. I'm going to homeschool my child during the pandemic. Just, you know, just really saying, uh-uh, this is not going to happen. Um, I need some help. Um, and, uh, and then also setting like just my own boundaries uh, when I needed um, I needed to step away and I needed to, I, I needed to tell my partner, Hey, you know what? Um, I, I need, I need to go for a walk. Um, I need to, I, I need, I need, I need this time right now <laughs> because it, or it's, it's one thing to be sustainable and then it's another thing to be sustaining. So how are we sustaining this, this lifestyle right now? Uh, because I, I cannot be doing this three meals a day all 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 day um every week that's that's not sustaining for us that's not sustaining for me um and so you know just 
um, negotiating, negotiating. What can you do? What can I do? At what point uh, do we need to call somebody in to help us? Um, and then just looking forward to going home uh, or what we considered home because we knew that back home was where, okay, I was going to get some um, reprieve or I was going to get a break with the kids and they're going to be around family. Um, so just figuring out like when are, when are those moments of relief? Because, um, cause it was, cause it can, it can be tough. Uh, but it's a, it's a lot less tough when you've got, uh, somebody that's got your back. That's beautiful. Thank you, Dee. So you mentioned a support group of people that are going through what you're going through, taking a step back and not putting unreasonable pressure on yourself. And, um, I heard some self-care in there too, in the form of taking a walk. <laughs> so that's good. And I really want uh, the listeners to understand, um, especially if you are the STEM professional, our families suffer right along with us if we don't manage the the bleeding of the impact of like being the only or being in a space that's, you know, kind of hostile. So we have to put in the effort to, like D says, negotiate and uh, strategize about how everyone can thrive while we're going through this pretty tough situation. And with that, um, D, we're looking to learn from you. What are your top strategies for thriving as a family member who supports someone that's going through like a, a STEM higher education program? I think what uh, the shift for us happened when, uh, because we've been in therapy uh, since we, we started um, pan- pandemic living, uh, actually since the move, because it was really hard um, on our oldest who was, you know, having to adjust to a whole new high school. Um, so, and then, uh, and then me trying to figure out how can I be supportive for my oldest, right? And who's like graduating this year. How can I be supportive to a PhD student uh, first year? So um, it was it, it, it was very much a group therapy and individual therapy, uh, both for each one of us and then my oldest. Um, and then because one, I think one thing that we were trying to that wasn't working was that mom was everything to everybody. You know, it was like uh, mom uh, is cooking. Mom is. Um, like helping with homework. Mom is trying to figure out problems that are going on at school. Uh, and then you have your partner that's like, hey, can I be your thing? Can you be my thing partner? Hey, can I uh, rehearse with you? Hey, can I, uh, what, this happened in the classroom. What do you think about this? It's like, okay, at some point I was like, you know what? I'd be more than happy to, to, to work with you. That's me telling my partner. I'd be more than happy to work with you. But um, I can't do that right now until the kids are asleep. Or I can't do that uh, until this weekend. You know, just like setting those boundaries because uh, the the stuff the stuff that your partner or in my case my partner was researching was very interesting to me, and I and I and I wanted to learn more, and I wanted to hear what it was. But when you when you're just doing it all day every day with the kids and your own work, and then aside from that, it's like emotional labor and mental labor. You're like, you know what, I. I, 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 I need to stop. Um, I need to stop uh, because I don't want this to come off the wrong way. So let's just reschedule. Let's just schedule for the, the weekend. Let's schedule for nighttime. Let's schedule for another time because right now I am completely exhausted on different levels, spiritually. <laughs> you know, so um, learning each other's love languages. Uh, for me, my love language is food, and and, I, and so when he was like. They're like, hey, here's some coffee. You know, I don't worry about dinner. We're going to order dinner. And I'm like, thank God. <laughs> so I'm just like, yes, I don't have to cook today. You know, situations like that. Um, also, uh, 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 I don't know if you've ever heard of a personal bill of rights. Um, just that idea that it is okay for you to be first sometimes. <laughs> if you're the partner, it's okay for you to uh, for you to take a break. It's okay for you to, you know, go and, and see a friend, go have dinner with friends. It's okay for, for you to be first sometimes. Um, and I think that that was something that I struggled with, like, oh, no, 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 I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I'm supposed to be supporting, I'm supposed to be mom, I'm supposed to be, 
you know, sister, wife, like all of these other things. And then you lose your identity through all that. So it's like really um, understanding that, you know, you need, you need your friends, you need your people, you need your sisters, uh, you need your siblings, you need, you, you need to have that for you as an individual. Um, and just be compassionate, just being compassionate with ourselves, with our partners, with our families. Um, compassion. Uh, I know like there, we had this discussion, uh, between my partner and I, we were talking about uh, compassion fatigue and, uh, we, we were like talking about, is that real? Like, is that a real thing? Or is this a term that another researcher came up with? And, um, we like, we were also talking with other folks about it and we were like, you know what, at the end, what we, what it came down to was that, um, compassion is our superpower. Like that understanding, it was, was like, yes. You're right. Yes, compassion is our superpower. And so not forgetting that, um, definitely for uh, advocacy inside and advocacy outside the institution. Um, when we're talking about strategies, um, uh, we're, we're also talking about like, what do, uh, what do students need? Uh, what do research assistants need? What, do, what do our families need? And, um, we're, uh, my partner is also part of uh, UAW, UC Local 2065. And so, you know, in that advocacy, um, what that looks like is uh, right now they're negotiating. And so they're negotiating for a cost of living adjustment. And we, I remember, uh, I think it was like our first year, second year here, um, we were talking about a COLA. We we're talking about a cost of living adjustment. And now uh, we're seeing other people in other um, areas talk about that. Uh, they were handing out Coca-Cola cans in Texas <laughs> to the state legislators because the teachers were pushing for a cola. So I thought that was hilarious. But um, here in uh, at, at the UC local, uh, they're negotiating right now for access to childcare because there are not enough spaces. Um, we actually got kicked out of childcare because we chose to keep our child home and not keep her in childcare. So we lost our spot, and we were like, "What the heck?" So, you know, access to child care, um, access to child care stipends. I cannot stress that enough. Like we need increases on those stipends and, and we need dependent health care. Um, when we got here, um, I, I had just, I was like in transition between jobs. Like, I wasn't working, um, because you have the whole like transfer. So I had to find a new job when I was here. Um, and so, uh, we, we qualified for Medi-Cal. And so when we were going through the Medi-Cal stuff, they were counting um, his uh, scholarship as income. And we were like, what? Like, how can this count scholarship? Oh, my God. And so then we had to appeal that decision. And it's just, you know, it's just, again, navigating all of those challenges and, and pushing back, like finding other people who are like, you know what? That's not okay push back like other people that are that are totally going to um not criticize you and not judge you and be like yeah girl push back on that you should get job care you should get a center stipend you should get health care uh dependent health care you know so like all of these things that we're sacrificing a lot to be here um and so where are those supports and if they're there if we don't see the support then let's let's get those supports in place let's advocate for those and let's push for those um so that's that's what I, I considered strategy. Wow, some great ones at that. So advocating for a child care, going to group and individual therapy, rescheduling for the interaction with your STEM person or your PhD person if you just don't have the emotional capacity to help at that time. Great, great, great tips for the person on the supportive end. And I also want to throw in there that I just learned that a very wealthy private institution pays for both child prenatal and birth and post postnatal care and child care for the grad students. I'm not going to name the institutions. No, <laughs> no, it's not. I, I, my jaw hit the floor. Um, that that's yes. possible but it's a yes. private institution with a multi-billion dollar mm-hmm. endowment mm-hmm. 
we have a situation now with UC as a whole uh, where undergrads don't, don't get housing guarantees. I was floored when I heard about that. Um, I was like, what? What do you mean? <laughs> that I can't, I mean, come on. It's, yeah, the, yeah. I, that even if, even if we get these demands right now, right? Even, even if we get these, there's so much more that we still need to push for because we cannot, we cannot forget about undergrads. Um, yeah, it's tough. It is tough. Yeah, you're right. It's 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 pretty tough for undergrads as well. And so thank you for that. And we're, we will round out and kind of conclude the conversation. And I'll ask you about um, the advice you have directly to the researcher. So we just talked about the advice for people that are supporting. Now, what can you tell us on the research side about things that we personally can do? What are the personal actions that we can take to shield our families and our friends from undue emotional burden due to the journey that we've decided to embark upon? I, um, I, I, don't, I don't know if I would say shield, but I would definitely say, how do we navigate, right? Because it's, um, it's, it's all, it's, it's going to be a whole bunch of challenges. And so how do you navigate who's going to journey with you? Um, yeah, who, who's, who's going to be like, okay, uh, and, and what do you want to do about it? You know, who, who is that person? Um, I mean, on, on our end, I, I can't speak for other people, but on our end, it, it was really counseling, um, cultural strength, uh, friends, chosen family, um, even like children, children as like, as, as just young people who have their own healing properties and who, who can just easily bring in life and joy because there are some days that we're just, we're just like, okay, I don't even know. I don't even know how to figure this one out. And the and and the and the light and joy that they bring in to you, and just being open to that, because I know uh, there were moments where I wasn't seeing it. I I, I was just, I was not seeing it. And what um, and the way that I saw it um, was um, there was a I took a I took a class. I think it was at University of Toronto online, and it was. Um, it was a popular education online course uh, with Lelia, and she was like, "Help me understand that there is some there's healing, there's healing there, and then accepting peers to be healing as well." And I, I totally did not get that before. I totally did not understand how peers can be healing, um, and I totally didn't understand children as. Um, you know, being part of your healing and light and joy because I, I, I had a, a, an understanding of, okay, we take care of the kids and, you know, we make sure that the kids are okay. You know, just like a, a, a whole totally different approach to that. Uh, but just reparenting, remothering ourselves, um, being gentle, um, to ourselves. Um, and then, you know, if, if you are spiritual or a non-spiritual person, you know, whatever your practices are for, for, for communal, um, for communal healing, uh, because I know that there's a, like a lot of individualized uh, stuff about self care, um, but really, what we're talking about is care, just just basic care. That's what it is. It's it's community care, it's collective care, it's family care. We're just talking about care, um, and so and so, what does that look like for you? And what's going to work for you? And what's going to work for your your team because this is a this is a whole team effort uh when you're when you're out here with your family or your partner you know how how is this going to work for both of y'all um and then you know what is it that you're looking forward to for us it was looking forward to either home bringing home here like bringing our families here and uh touring the campus with them or touring the city that we're in with them um them getting to know our people 
uh, that we were able to journey with here and then us also going home and then just reconnecting back with our roots if that's open to you. Um, and then just, again, a lot of understanding and maneuvering and knowing that, you know, it's a work in progress. Um, and it's not, and we definitely were not searching for perfection. Um, I think it's, it's the perfectionism that is, is that, that was, that was really something that, um, was a challenge for both of us, uh, because perfectionism for me looked different than, uh, it looked for him. And so, uh, what does, how does, does perfection, is perfectionism a thing, uh, for either one of us? And if so, what did that look and feel like? And so what can we do to, um, let go, just let go of that perfectionism, which is what, um, what I, what I'm talking about when we're, when we're talking about children or our kids as that feeling and joy, uh, because they're not, they're not looking for perfectionism. They're just looking for love. They're looking for care. And so, um. Again, going back to compassion, but that's, um, that's all I have. <laughs> I hope that was helpful. Oh, that was beautiful, Dee. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your heartfelt feedback and, and commentary, um, which I am pretty sure is going to inspire other moms, other partners that are just hanging on, you know, you know, maybe they need a little bit of encouragement to let them know that they're not on their own and it's possible through um, navigating together. Um, thank you. I'm inspired. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'd like to thank you, Dee, for your time. And uh, listeners, be sure to uh Come back for more content. And this has been episode 10 of Under the Hood, and we'll catch you in the next one.